We are in chapter 18, and chapter 18 begins with a question brought by the disciples to Jesus. They ask, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now, there's some important things to note that like, just previously took place leading up to this question. Remember, if you were here the last few weeks, Jesus went on top of a mountain and there was this event called the transfiguration where a voice from heaven reveals that Jesus is the divine son of God. So in one sense, it's sort of like, who's the greatest? Didn't you guys figure it out up on the mountain? And then right after the transfiguration where Jesus is revealed to be the divine son of God, you get Jesus saying for the second time that he will have to go to Jerusalem, be handed over, suffer, and die. So in the midst of kind of that and a few other events, Matthew tells us that at this time, the disciples decide to ask, like, you know, Jesus, who's the best? Like, who's the greatest? And we can't be sure, but probably what they're wondering, the question beneath the question is, which one of us is the best? Because um, if, if you reflect, reflect on it, um, the, the disciples are the twelve. You know, they're, they're the 12 chosen disciples. They've been given authority to do miraculous things, cast out demons, to teach and have authority. There's all this stuff going, so it's like, you know, who's, who's gonna be the, the best out of all, all of us? Now, in Jesus' day, um, many people, if they were asked a question like that, would, similarly to us, would point to um, some old, like, kind of hero of the faith, someone who becomes emblematic of of what it means to be a great person. So you might be expecting Jesus to say something like um, Moses or Elijah, Jeremiah, but he doesn't. Jesus does something shocking here. He says, and calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You have to become like a child. Now, we have to do some work here because there's a lot of confusion regarding how people looked at children in the first century world. Um, because many times you might have heard something, something like people in, in the ancient way, days, in times like this, they didn't really care for, for kids, they weren't loved, they weren't treated well, and they were just kind of on the outside. And um, we have to nuance this a little bit, because in a first century Jewish context, children were absolutely loved and cared for and appreciated. All you have to do is look in the Hebrew scriptures, in the Old Testament, and you're going to see parents loving their children. Furthermore, in the Psalms, which is the Bible that they're all reading, it says that children are a blessing from the Lord. So children are a direct blessing from the direct hand of God. So they're loved and they're cherished. Now there might have been some more emotional distance that was created between parents and especially little children due to the mortality rate. Um, Many, many children died. And so there might have been, you know, a wall, uh, an emotional distance that was created so that you wouldn't necessarily bond with a child in the same sense that you would so easily today to sort of give yourself that distance because so many young ones died. But they were absolutely loved and cared for. They're blessings from the Lord. What Jesus is referring to has more to do with the, the status of a child Children didn't have authority, they didn't have rank, they didn't have prestige, they didn't have a voice. 
people necessarily didn't care what they, they would have to say, like no one's you know, asking for input from children type, type of thing. So it's, it's, and in the Greek, when it says that, they, that you have to humble yourself like a child, it hints at this. We're talking about the status or the fact that they have no authority, no voice, no prestige to bring to the table. And that's important to note because in our culture, we do have a sort of different relationship with children because our culture idolizes youthfulness and adolescence and childlike behavior. We are a Peter Pan culture. We think it's a great idea to go to Neverland where you never have to grow up. And so oftentimes you can hear this talked about. It's like, well, children are, they don't carry responsibility. They're free of the world's worries. And it's almost like subtly being communicated like childlike faith means immaturity, lack of responsibility. And that's not the case. It's not a Peter Pan faith. Our culture wants to go to to Neverland and never have to grow up. That's ridiculous. Growing up, maturing, and bearing weight and responsibility, that's a good thing. We're talking about kind of the status and the authority that children have, the position that they would play type of thing. Because in our culture, we do things like look at some massive geopolitical, crazy, multifaceted, complex issue, and we go, I think we should just ask the children. You know, if we just listen to the children more. Let's just listen to the children. And don't feel bad. I know some of you have said, don't feel bad. That's the culture we live in. It's saturated. It's like we're, we're growing up in it. But you don't ask. You can't even ask children, hey, you know, kids, you get to pick the menu for dinner this week. There's wise decision making. If you let kids run the show on that, they will ban vegetables by the end of the week and have permanently installed free ice cream machines in every house. You know, how much candy do you want to eat, son? You don't ask them about, like, what do you think's best? You know, but that's, that's sort of where we live, and, and, and we don't want to say childlike faith is immature faith that doesn't have responsibility. It's never land-like faith. It's you go to, go to there and you be a lost boy and never grow up. <clears throat> no, it's a good thing to grow up and mature. What Jesus is talking about is the humble posture of the child. They don't bring stuff to the table. Because this is the other thing that children display, is children are completely dependent and trusting upon their parents for everything, for provision and, and, and more. So when a child is loved rightly and a home is filled with love, a child depends on mom and dad and they depend upon the goodness of mom and dad and they just trust that mom and dad will provide. So think of it like this, um, dad's in the swimming pool and uh, he's telling his son, come on son, you can jump to me. You know, and the son gets to the edge, he's a little bit scared. Like the son is bringing nothing to this equation. The son isn't bringing power, authority, his voice. The only thing that that son brings to that equation is the trust that he has his dad will catch him. Do you follow this? The only thing that child brings is a dependent, a dependency and trust that dad is good and he'll catch me. And so there's this posture of childlike faith that is one that doesn't cling to status or authority, but just comes in trust and in this belief that God is good and I can run to him. So let that sort of image govern how you look at this. <clears throat> the disciples came to him saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, 
he put them in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. All right. Now, many times when this passage is brought up about causing the little ones to stumble on this great millstone, we immediately think of children. And rightfully so, because what did Jesus just do? He pulled out a literal child and shocked everybody. But listen to the words carefully. There's a subtle shift in verse six. It says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, then you face the judgment. So some people would say, it's not children Jesus is talking about in the general sense. Jesus is talking about children who put their faith in Jesus. <clears throat> so like believing children. But then others would say, no, no, you got to understand that Jewish people referred to the students of a teacher or a rabbi as children. And in fact, all throughout scripture, you see that language used. When the apostles write to churches that they planted, they'll address people sometimes as like my children, my sons and my daughters. And so this, this group of people would say, Jesus is, isn't just referring to children in general. He's not referring to believing children. He's referring to people who are new in the faith, new believers, ones who are the little ones who believe in me. So sometimes, kind of in the modern world, we call this like a baby Christian, like a Christian. You're just, a, you've been a Christian two weeks. I'm a baby Christian, man. I don't, have, I don't know anything about the Bible. All I know is I trust Jesus. I jump to him in the pool type of thing. And so those are the three options, sort of like literal children, children who believe in Jesus, and then new believers. So which is it? Well, in one sense, it's all of them, and we don't have to choose. Because I think what Jesus is doing here is he's establishing a principle, an idea. And he's talking specifically about, I think, people who are new to the faith, but he's using an analogy that also applies. It's very similar to children. In the same way children are vulnerable, and if you cause them to sin, it's a great sin. In the same way, it's a great sin to, to cause a new believer to sin. Now, there's, there's some more unpacking here that makes more sense of this because there's a problem with one of these words. Verse six, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. The word for sin here in Greek that the New Testament uses isn't the word for sin. There's a word for sin. The Greek here is the word scandalon. And if you've been tracking with this the last several weeks, this isn't the first time I've mentioned this word. Like scandalon has been a running theme for the last several weeks. And scandalon means to cause an offense, but it literally, its roots mean to put a stumbling block in front of somebody. So this should more accurately read, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. You put a stumbling stone. And you can see the difference between sin and causing someone to stumble. So the idea is this. For new believers, people who are new to Christianity, and also for children or people who are vulnerable, people who are trusting you to provide for them, to care for them, if you cause one of those to stumble, there's great judgment. Now, there's another reason why I think this is an idea and principle that Jesus is establishing. 
is it's not that Jesus is choosing this language out of nowhere. He's not inventing this stumbling block language. He actually gets it from the Bible that he read, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament. Way back in Leviticus, it says this. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear God, I am the Lord. In other words, there's people who are vulnerable. There's people who rely on other people to care for them and to protect them. And if you put a stumbling block in their way, this is a grave sin. And you shouldn't do this out of your fear of God. Because God says this is a great sin to cause a little one, whether a literal little one or I think uh, someone who is new to the faith to stumble. But it also applies to someone who is blind. You're supposed to, they're entrusting themselves in your care. And if you betray that and cause them to stumble, there is a great judgment. Now, what's this great judgment? Well, he says, it would be better to have a great millstone fastened around your neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. It's heavy because um, these are the words of Jesus. You know, sometimes in our culture, Jesus is, is loving, he's gracious, he's forgiving, and all of that stuff is true, but then it goes too far and you say things like, he would never judge you, he's not judgmental. No. You cause the little one to stumble, it's better if a giant rock was attached to your neck and you're thrown into the sea. This idea of a millstone comes from everyday living. So in every home, there was ways to kind of grind wheat to make flour, so you could picture a stone that maybe someone is using to, to create flour in order to bake with. But don't just picture like a small stone because Jesus says a great millstone. And the two Greek words are alkinos mulos, which basically is a donkey millstone, which is referring to a st- specific type of mill. It's a donkey millstone, which is a millstone that's so big a human can't move it So you have a donkey rotate around this circular basin and as that stone is pulled, it's rolled over and smashing whatever's beneath it. So how big is the stone? It's like this big. Don't cause the little ones to stumble. Otherwise, you know, your judgment will be so great that it would be better for you to have that attached, fastened to your neck and thrown into the sea. Now, what's up with the sea? because there's another layer to this. This water judgment is an image of horrific judgment. Oftentimes, when we think of biblical images of judgment, we jump immediately to fire. And we go, water, what's so bad about water? Like, I get that drowning is bad, but why is water in and of itself this, this horrific image of judgment? Well, in the conceptual world, of the people in Jesus' day, the water is the place of the abyss. It's the depths of the sea. Like modern people, we, we get boats and you have like water sports, you go jet skiing, water skiing. Like that. The, the water is not the recreational activity of the ancient world. It's a dangerous, scary place. There's rabbinic sayings that say to, to, if you're going to properly bring something to utter destruction, then you throw it into the salt sea. A salt sea, it's because of the ocean. Now, why is that? Because the image is not just of a little sea. We're talking about an ocean or a deep sea. 
because if you lose something in the deep sea, there's no way to get it back. So uh, if you're out there and you, you, your wedding ring falls off and you're in the de- depths of the sea, there's no way you're getting it back. It can't come back. There's no scuba diving. There's no submarine you could rent. When treasure's lost at sea, it's lost forever until the modern world comes and we can go explore. So think about that. When something falls into the depths of the sea in the conceptual world, that means utter destruction. It is the worst type of destruction. It's a destruction that you can't come back from. It's heavy. And so Jesus says, if you cause the little ones to stumble, it would be better for you to have the stone that the donkey pulls tied around your neck and thrown into the depths of the sea. That's how strong his warning is. Now we need to take this very, very serious as individuals and then as a, as a culture, right? You don't, the child should look to mom and dad and the child should look to God. And when God does this, the child runs with nothing but trust and goes to a heavenly father that loves them. If you damage that trust, you are in danger of great judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. And we have to take that serious because you have to realize that our current cultural climate prioritizes self-interest and what is good for adults in a moment. And so we are not prioritizing the needs of children. We are prioritizing the needs of selfish adults. And if a culture does not care and love and nurture children, first and foremost, they are a culture destined to die and deservingly so. They deserve God's judgment. So I'm just like saying straight up, our culture is not prioritizing the, the loving nurture of children. We prioritize ourselves, what we want in the moment. And so that's not good. And then an individual warning. If you find yourself in a place where you are prioritizing your wants and desires and needs above that of children and you cause them to stumble, Jesus warns, great judgment awaits you. So you ought to repent and ask for forgiveness and do whatever you can to get out of that selfishness. He goes on. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one whom the temptation comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. Now this first, this first section is just a description of the world, of reality. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. 
It's necessary that temptations come, but woe to you when the temptation comes. In other words, we live in a fallen, broken world. Temptations will come your way, and woe to you when they do. But then Jesus gives you sort of the very practical advice on what to do when the temptations come your way. If your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. If your foot causes you to sin, chop it off. If your eye causes you to sin, chop it off. Gouge it out. Pull it out. And he says, that creates two paths, one that leads to life and one that leads to the hell of fire. Let's deal with each one independently. First, there's a road that leads to life. Now, it's important to reflect here because sort of as modern Christians, oftentimes when we think about the scriptures offering us life, we go, well, I'm alive right now. And so what it means by I will have life, that means um, there's an afterlife and I will live forever. And that's true. So part of the life that Jesus offers is life everlasting in that it doesn't end, it goes on forever. But when you look at scripture, it's not just offering life in the sense that it goes on forever. It's categorically and fundamentally a different type of life. It's a, it's a fullness of life. It's an abundant life. It's something that's in, it's in a different type of thing. So you have to think of it like this. However you are currently experiencing life, it is a shadow and a figment of what ultimate life looks like. You will one day have a life that has so much life, it will make this current life look deathly. It's in a category all into itself, a different type of life. And it's not just that it goes on forever. There's a fullness to it, a wholeness. And Christ says there's a way that leads to that. But there's also a way that leads to the hell of fire. Now, we've talked about this already in our series in Matthew. Um, so we won't spend too much time here, but in case you missed it when we were way back, I think in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the fact that when Jesus talks about hell or the hell of fire, he's usually using a Greek word that's not equivalent to our word hell, but it's the word Gehenna. And Gehenna is a Greek word that's taken from the Hebrew, Gehinnom, and it literally just means the valley of Hinnom. And it can be confusing because it's sort of like, you better watch out, otherwise you get thrown into the fire of the valley of Hinnom. And the valley of Hinnom is a literal physical location outside of the city walls in Jerusalem. That's it. You can go visit there. That's, you know, and then you're going, well, that's not too scary. Then you look, here's a little close-up. Some of you are going, you know, hell doesn't look that much worse to where I already live, man. <laughs> it's kind of got a better view, more green space, nice trees. How is it that hell is worse than my current living situation? So <clears throat> what's going on? Well, there, there's a thought and some evidence that says maybe in the time of Jesus or subsequent to the time of Jesus, that um, people would burn their trash in the valley of Hinnom. And so then there's this image of fire and smoke and garbage and it wouldn't smell good. So Jesus says, you better repent, otherwise you're gonna get thrown into the valley of Hinnom, which is fire, smoke, it smells, all of that stuff. So it's a horrific image of judgment. But there's another fire that goes on in the valley of Hinnom that's more important. And it's way back in the book of Jeremiah, it says this, for the sons of Judah have done evil in my sight, declares the Lord. 
They have set the detestable things in the house that is called by my name to defile it. And here's the key part. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it come to my mind. So in this valley of Gehenna, Israel became so vile, evil, and corrupt that they began to sacrifice their children by fire to false gods. And so it's an image, it's a detestable image, a disgusting image. I mean, this is recorded in the Bible. Jeremiah says this is what's going on in Gehenna, the sacrifice of children by fire to false gods. And so you picture the most detestable of fires and then it subsequently earns the image of fire because the image of fire doesn't become not only what it's doing, it becomes its destination, its judgment. So the judgment of fire is reserved for those who participated in this evil deed. So it's, it's, a, it's a horrific image of judgment by fire, which is interesting because we just got done talking about a horrific image of judgment by water. And you can see they're actually connected a little bit, not only in the imagery of fire and water, but on top of that, what was taking place in the Valley of Hinnom? The destruction of children. Therefore, the judgment of fire, after we just got done talking about a judgment of water for those who cause little ones to stumble. So the Bible will employ all these very, very harsh images to describe judgments that are very real. So what are we to do? Because Jesus says, when these temptations come that will lead you down a false, a wrong path, if it's your foot, chop it off. If it's your hand, chop it off. If it's your eye, gouge it out, pull it out. And this, I, this imagery of self-mutilation would have been detestable to Jewish people. I mean, the Old Testament forbids this type of thing again and again. Nevertheless, Jesus still uses this language to communicate the reality of the situation. If there's significant temptation in your life, do whatever you can to get rid of it. Now, at this point, there's something that needs to be said. In that, Oftentimes, we can focus and highlight and emphasize the mercy of God, the love of God, the grace of God, the forgiveness of God, to such a degree, simultaneously neglecting some of the other passages in the scripture, that we unknowingly and unintentionally nullify the words of Jesus. Because you could immediately just say, no, let's talk about the love of God, you know, and which is all true. God loves you. He offers grace and forgiveness. No matter what you've done, if you're willing to repent, come, he'll forgive you. But you could do that so much and you never talk about these other passages that you nullify the very words of Jesus. This is Jesus talking. Jesus says, you damage children, millstone. If you have sin in your life and you don't wage war against it, do you know where this will lead? And so immediately, sometimes people go, well, you know, Isaac, Jesus isn't saying literally chop off your hand, literally chop off your foot, literally gouge out your eye. It's a metaphor. Yes, it's a metaphor. Absolutely a metaphor. But Jesus is using non-literal language to make a literal point. If there's significant sources of temptation in your life, cut them out at all cost. So you don't, people always say, that's just a metaphor. 
And it means that we should be careful to not be tempted. No, it means when there's significant sources of temptation in your life, cut them out. Get rid of them. Now, what does that look like? It looks like a million different things in a million different ways, but let's just, let's just look at a few quick examples so we're kind of on the same page. Let's say you're in your small group and you say in your small group, you know, I'm really struggling with lust. Really struggling with lust and I, I don't want to lust as much. And then someone in your small group says, well, what are, you know, we all struggle with that. That's difficult. And um, what are some, are there things that you could cut out in your life? Like, where do you often find sources of this temptation of lust? And someone's, you know, you say, oh, my TV. You know, most of the stuff I watch is good. Most of the stuff I watch on TV, it's all good. It's wholesome. You know, it's like, Nature shows, the History Channel, which isn't really historic. But, uh, you know, it's, but sometimes there's some bad things that I shouldn't see. And someone says, well, then get rid of your TV. Well, I can't do, like, hey, let's not get crazy. Let's not get radical and, like, just get rid of my TV. Like, how will I stay up on things? How will I, how will I know what's going on? How will I be relevant? Better to lose relevancy and have life than to be relevant in Gehenna. You may say, well, that's pretty radical. The non-literal, the literal, the, the, the non-literal language is meant to communicate something literal here. You say, well, another source is my phone. Get rid of your phone. Well, no, I can't get rid of my cell phone. How do you, how do you even interact in the modern world without a cell phone? And then, you know, you'd let people know that you know, we have the, the, the history books that remind us of the before times, before the sun came up and all was dark where people existed and lived their lives without cell phones. And they had conversations face to face. And if you didn't know where someone is at, you had to wait till they got home to, to have certainty and security. You know, I know it was a very dark time and, you know, there was no light to shine and we'd all but lost hope. But somehow our ancient ancestors persevered. Like, you can live without a cell phone, man. If your cell phone is causing you to sin, get rid of it. Furthermore, you don't even have to get rid of completely a cell phone. You just get rid of a smartphone. You know there's phones? They, they just, like, call and text. You can get something like that. Get rid of the cell phone. And you know what? There might even be one of them old school phones. Now, some of you who are old school will remember this. There might be one of those that do nothing but give phone calls, text, and let you play this game called Snake in which you just kind of go around. That's the only app you need. It's the only app you need. Snake, let me call and text. Okay, so you see how this works. Is a TV inherently sinful? No, but if it's a significant source of temptation, get rid of it. Just get rid of it. If your phone is a significant source of temptation, get rid of it. It's not worth it. Let's say you... You become addicted to, to shopping because you got a, you know, an Amazon Prime account. And ever since they built that massive warehouse in Hollister, you find these deals. And it says, wait a second here. It says that if I order in the next hour and 42 minutes, I can get this tomorrow? You know how happy they'll make me to get this tomorrow? And so what happens is you get addicted to buying things you don't need. 
Cancel your subscription. Get rid of it. It's not worth it. No, but you got to understand. You know, I also, in addition to buying some things that I don't need, I, I find tons of deals, like 20% off this, 50. You know how much I got a bulk toilet paper for, man? Right on Amazon Prime, it was there the next day, saved $3.47. Look, the amount of money you will save on buying unnecessary things will far outweigh the 15% discount you got on Amazon. So get rid of it. Now, Will, getting rid of your subscription or getting rid of your TV eliminate lust in your life? No, but it will eliminate a significant source of temptation. It is a wise thing to remove significant sources of temptation. That's a wise thing. It won't clear it all up. You still have the heart work to do. You still need the empowerment of the spirit, but removing it's a very wise thing. Or here's another example, even harder, because it sounds extreme. Let's say you're a father and you work a job that you have to work a lot of hours, a lot of hours. And Nothing wrong with working a lot of hours. Every, you got to provide for your kids. There's nothing wrong of that. Work hard. It's my position that men need to work harder all the time. It's good for you to put more weight upon your back. However, let's say you work so many hours to such a degree that your kids actually entertain the thought, does dad love working more than he does love us? Or what if it's ruining your marriage? What if your job is ruining your marriage? What if your job is a significant source of temptation regarding your ability to father your kids rightly. What do you do? You quit your job. Your job is not worth your wife and your kids. It's not worth it. And you may say, well, that sounds pretty radical. So does chopping your hands and your eyes off. Say, I don't know, it still sounds pretty, it's not, it's, it's not that easy, it's more complicated. Yeah, of course it's complicated. It's not like just you can, well, I'm gonna quit and then magic money will, will appear from heaven. You still have to provide for your children. But I'll tell you this, it might be better because, you know, it's very difficult. The standard, the, the, the cost of living here is kind of pricey, right? Are there other places where you might not be able to, you may be able to work a less demanding job and still pay the rent. Now you might not have the same house, you might not have the nice spring and summer, and you might not have fall Octobers where it's like 75 degrees outside. There's a price to pay. But better to move to North Dakota and freeze the entire winter, (laughs) but freeze with your children knowing dad loves me than to have it all here. And so the Lord knows I don't want any more people moving away and leaving the church. (laughs) But I have to answer to God. And it is better for you to quit a job and leave and live in North Dakota and get a less higher standard of living and freeze with your children but knowing they love you and you love them. Better to keep your marriage intact. Better to raise your family right. So, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Removing the TV isn't going to remove lust from you, but it removes a significant source of temptation. Get rid of the Prime account. Get rid of the extra hours. Do whatever you can to remove those significant sources of temptation in your life.
That's how serious it is. That's the language Jesus uses. Now, Jesus says, if you are going to be a citizen of his kingdom, you have to become like a child. And as we talked about, that doesn't mean being immature, gullible, naive, and willing to believe whatever is said. It's a status thing. It's about taking a humble position. It's about, about not thinking you're the best person in the room. It's about not asking questions like, who's the greatest? So I said, I'm just a child. I'm just a child, but I'm my father's child. And then you bring what you have and you serve. You serve to such degree that you might even end up washing someone's feet. Now, why do I say that? Because who modeled all of this for us? Who modeled the childlike behavior that is being described? Jesus did. Now, that image might sound offensive if you think childlike faith is immature and naive and gullible. But if you understand it to be a way of saying, I'm not going to cling to prestige or power, but I will take the lowly position of a servant, then things will begin to fall into place. And what do you see all throughout the life of Jesus? You see the servant. You see the humble posture. This is so much displayed that later the Apostle Paul, one of the first leaders of the early Christian church, writing to a church in Philippi, he's encouraging them to remain unified and to have the same mind, and then he brings up the example of Jesus. Listen to what he says. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only for his own interest, but also to the interest of others. In humility, look out for others. Don't, don't be about selfish ambition. Count others more significant. And then he goes this, because you know who did that, right? Paul says, you know who modeled this perfectly, right? Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death on, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So who actually is at the top of the class? Who is the greatest? Christ. But he doesn't cling or grasp or hold on to this. What does he do? He empties himself. And then what does he do next? He takes on the form of a human. And then what does he do? He takes the position of a servant. And then what does he do? He's the position of a servant who goes to die. But what type of death? Death on a cross. So who models this perfectly for us? Christ is the greatest. He is God in the flesh who's come from heaven and he empties himself and becomes a human to become a servant, to become a servant who dies on a cross for what? To save his children. Not to damage or to harm them, but he leaves heaven and its glory to come to earth to become a servant so that he might save his children. And when you understand this, you can then, in childlike faith, learn to depend and trust him. Because you say, if this is what God is like, and he's saying, jump, I'll jump. If he's that good, if he would leave heaven's glory to come to die 
the death of the cross as a servant of all in order that he might save me. I can trust him. Now I also understand that in this room, many, many of our faith and trust has been damaged. You know, because we had people in our lives that Jesus talked about when he talked about millstone type of judgment. And we have hurts and pains and brokenness And so we are not all like perfect children who run with perfect faith. But what do we do in those moments? Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. How much faith do I got? A man like a mustard seed, just a little bit. And Jesus says, that's enough. Take that mustard seed and all the doubts and the unbelief and bring them to me. And you can look to this God and know that he's a healing God. He's the good shepherd. So you run to him with your fears, with your doubt, with the anxiety, and you trust him with that. And then as you begin to grow, and you begin to grow in your faith and trust and love of him, you will look at things in your life that you used to say, well, there's no way I could ever get rid of that. You say, why was I tripping over a TV? How ridiculous that was. And this room, by the way, is filled with people who have grown in the trust of the Lord and now look back at things that they used to cling to and go, what was I thinking? Why was I holding on to that? And so he is the good father who we can trust, we can run to. If we've been hurt, if we got pain and suffering in our life, that's okay. Just bring that tiny mustard seed of faith to him and he'll nurture it, he'll grow it. He's for you, not against you. He loves you. He left heaven's glory to save you. And so as we transition to communion,